Chapter Four of England in the Middle Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. England in the Middle Ages by Elizabeth O'Neill. The beginnings of the Constitution, twelve sixteen through thirteen o nine. The limitations to the effects of the Great Charter on its own age finds ample illustration in the history of the years which follow. The opposition to John had shown some faint beginnings of national, rather than English, feeling. The foreign character of the classes who made history is emphasized by the story of misrule in the long reign of John's son, Henry III, from 1216 to 1272. The opposition, however, which at length put an end to the king's misrule, had in it a very definite English element, and serves to show how, through the progress of years, that race was coming into some degree of political power. Henry III, though born and bred in England, was a foreigner in feeling, perhaps more so than his father. He was personally attractive, handsome and well-made like his father, gentle and suave almost to weakness, though occasionally in anger he showed himself the son of john when he came to power he attempted to model his rule of england on the system of the french kings controlling the government himself and working it through a class of clerks able but undistinguished mere routine workers this was not unlike the system of henry the second but his grandson was cast in a different mould henry the third had not the practical ability to carry out his ideal, and the result was a disorder which reproduced in effect, if not in spirit, the tyranny of a Rufus or a John. But all this was not yet. Henry was but nine years of age at his father's death. A reaction in favor of the national king was inevitable. The aged William Marshall, Earl of Pembroke, one of the two earls who had clung to John, acted as ruler of the young king and reissued the charter in his name. The nobles deserted Louis one by one, moved partly by national feeling and partly by jealousy of the favors he gave to his French followers. Henry had the weight of the church in Rome on his side, and the papal legate took a hand in the government. Louis, with his Frenchmen, were driven from the siege of Lincoln Castle within six months, and so great was the plunder that the battle was known as the fair of lincoln this victory was followed up by a brilliant naval success conducted by the justiciar hubert de burg the story of the engagement allowing for differences in equipment reads like an anticipation of the armada fight the english got the weather gauge in the fashion which becomes traditional in their naval warfare they blinded their enemies with quicklime thrown in their faces down the wind. The victory put an end to Louis's hopes of invasion, and within a month he signed the Treaty of Lambeth, by which he agreed to forego his claims on England. William the Marshal issued the charter once again, with the forest charter which John had promised. For the future, fines or banishment were to replace death or mutilation as punishment for a breach of the forest laws and thus the bitterest grievance which the Norman conquest had brought to Englishmen was ended. The marshal now turned his energies to restore order in the land, which was threatened with a repetition of the conditions 
of stephen's reign adultering castles had to be destroyed and usurpations of royal justice wrested from local magnates william died in twelve nineteen and the work was taken up by hubert de burg with the loyal support of pandolf who had come a second time to england as papal legate in those years no one attempted to deny the suzerainty which innocent had won in england was frankly worked as a papal fief it was one of the great faults in henry's government when he came to his own that he never had the stamina or the inclination to resist the demands of the pope hubert continued the work of the marshal he had most trouble with the nobles of the loyalist party who had hoped much from the rule of a minor often an army had to be led against a defiant baron in twelve twenty four fox de brote one of john's mercenary leaders who had done splendid service at lincoln held bedford castle obstinately against the whole shire levy the castle was surrendered after two months and the fox fled overseas it was a salutary example and marks an end of disorder arising from this source in twelve twenty three the pope had declared henry of age but this was merely a move to make the king's friends disgorge the royal possessions they were holding during the minority in twelve twenty seven he was actually declared of an age to govern and it began with an act of evil augury his angry dismissal of hubert de bourg through the influence of peter des roches the appointivan bishop of winchester and henry's personal guardian even in the marshal's day this act strikes the note of the misrule in the next quarter of a century henry had all the weak man's obstinacy in following his own inclinations he liked frenchmen and england in those years suffered what was practically an alien invasion peter des roches was made justiciar and Poitiers alone stood high in the king's favor peter induced henry to give to his friend peter of revolt nineteen out of the thirty-five english sheriftons in twelve thirty five the new archbishop of canterbury edmund rich a scholar and a saint induced henry by threats of excommunication to banish peter and his friends henry did not appoint any more justiciars in the old sense and gradually the office became merely that of chief justice he occupied himself with vast schemes which never came to anything justice was delayed and money frittered away with no result henry soon fell back again on foreign favorites and various hordes successively planted themselves on english soil there were first the family and the innumerable relations of his mother isabella of angouleme who married after john's death hugh of lusignan in twelve thirty seven henry married eleanor of provence and a host of provencals and savoyards followed her to england even the archbishopric of canterbury was prostituted at edmund's death to one of these boniface of savoy an illiterate and quite worldly young man hardly distinguished at first from the throng of foreign favorites was simon de montfort grandson of amicia countess of leicester his father the elder simon had supported philippe augustus against john and had forfeited the earldom of leicester he also distinguished himself in the campaign against heresy in the south of france 
the younger simon came to england in 1230 got back the earldom and in 1238 married the king's sister eleanor for four years from 1248 he performed the ungrateful task of governing gascony henry had been defeated by the french king in poitou in 1242 and was at his wit's end to curb resistance in gascony when montfort took over its government and kept order with a strong hand henry carped at his rule in his distrustful way and the earl having finished the task of imposing order gave up his governorship he soon definitely put himself on the side of the opposition which had been steadily growing and which came to a head about this time the church or its better members was as opposed to henry's system as was the baronage the papacy had drained it all through the reign even henry at one point protested at the scale on which money was wrung from the church to support the papacy in its great duel against the hohenstaufen emperors but for the most part he acquiesced in the papal exactions the papal countenance of the alien invasion of the english church by henry's friends indeed made this necessary grosteste the famous bishop of lincoln and friend of simon de montfort had opposed the abuse for years but his standard of loyalty to the pope the standard which was commonly accepted by the thirteenth-century church hampered his action the foolish action of henry in accepting for his second son edmund the crown of sicily confiscated from the hohenstaufen crystallized the opposition the king was to pay immense subsidies to win the kingdom which merely meant that the english were to continue to subsidize the papacy on a larger scale than before the barons in twelve fifty eight at a meeting at oxford which the king's partisans called the mad parliament notified the king that they were about to take measures to reform his government a committee of twenty-four was chosen to draft a plan of reform twelve of these were chosen by the king and it is significant that he chose six churchmen four aliens and two of his relatives the opposition twelve contained but one churchman and one alien simon de montfort it was a curious chance that made a foreigner the heart and soul of the national opposition and in spite of the arbitrariness and harshness which mingled with his better qualities and which the next few years were to emphasize there can be no doubt that simon's sympathies were really national and not merely baronial it may be that he saw that the only firm foundation from which to check the royal tyranny was a lower stratum than had yet acceded to political power there is of course still the question whether this realization did more credit to his head or his heart the twenty-four drew up the provisions of oxford transferring the government to a standing council of fifteen with various other advisory committees the conception of limited monarchy which had thus gained acceptance showed a great advance on the provisions of the great charter the limited number of commissioners made for efficiency and a certain amount of reforming work was done such as the removal of royal officers and the changing of the sheriffs the foreigners for the most part fled soon however dissension broke out among the leaders of the opposition it was rumoured that robert of gloucester was jealous of earl simon 
the young prince of wales edward was in those days receiving splendid schooling and statesmanship hitherto a thoughtless boy he seems to have been sobered and matured by the shock of the opposition already he was forming a policy and during the absence of both simon and his father in twelve fifty nine he pressed the oligarchy to proceed with their task the result was the reforms described in the provisions of westminster in twelve sixty simon and edward made a kind of alliance against the party of gloucester who adopted an attitude of loyalty to the king the situation was but momentary edward and his father were really firm friends and were easily reconciled by richard of cornwall the king's brother who had throughout the reign exerted a wise and sober influence over henry henry was however encouraged to obtain papal absolution from his promises it was but natural that when the struggle reopened edward should be found on his father's side it was broken a moment by the agreement to submit the question as to whether the provisions were binding to the king of france the great statesman crusader and aesthetic st louis in spite of his great qualities louis's view was bounded by the outlook of the autocratic monarchy which the french kings had built up he found the provisions invalid and derogatory simon in his turn proved false to his pledges and refused to be bound by the mise of amiens it weakened his party but richard of gloucester was now dead and simon had the loyal support of his son the young earl gilbert simon's own four sons were greedy and ambitious fighting largely for their own hand at first when the struggle reopened in twelve sixty four the royalist party had the advantage but they were no match for simon in the open field on fourteenth may he won the great battle of Luz, and both the king and prince were taken prisoner next day the king accepted the mise of Luz, promising to uphold the provisions of oxford simon repeated the tactics of twelve fifty eight but this time three electors himself gilbert of gloucester and the bishop of chichester nominated a governing council of nine who were to be supervised for a time by their electors it was not even baronial government but government by a party and it meant the dictatorship of simon the royalists regarded the settlement merely as a truce simon in twelve sixty five called together his great parliament in which for the first time burgesses from cities and towns were summoned as well as knights of the shire to take part in the nation's councils there were several precedents for the summoning of knights of the shire the thing was in the air even john had called them once but the extension of the popular element was a stroke of genius even if it was but a bid for popularity this parliament was however but an experiment and contained the germ of the later house of commons but that is all the measure gives us a glimpse into the mind of the man who was striving for a great cause against impossible odds the great leader was in a false position and earl gilbert was alienated by the attitude of montfort's sons prince edward escaped and formed a party and the young earl of gloucester went over to him they led an army against simon's remnant at evensham and with odds of seven to one the battle was but a massacre simon fell with his son henry and many of his closest friends 
the king who had been led into the battle by his side was wounded and nearly killed in the confusion earl simon's body was buried at the grey father's at evensham but his head was sent to the wife of roger mortimer the marches lord who had been his great enemy it was made a punishable crime to proclaim him a holy man for he had died under the ban of the church but he received a popular if not papal canonization he was after all a great patriot and it was a true instinct which led the people to honour his memory his policy triumphed for it was assimilated by the future king henry was old and broken edward full of a wisdom beyond his years and after the earl's death though there was still some fighting and the disinherited held out for many months at kenilworth a settlement was achieved the dictum of kenilworth at the end of twelve sixty six left their estates to the rebels but exacted heavy fines a year later the statute of marble reenacted the provisions of westminster the government was taken over into the hands of tried bureaucrats and the king was content that it should be so in twelve seventy edward felt that he might safely join king louis who was going on to crusade for the second time louis died on the way but edward pressed on to raise the siege of acre a lurid light is shed on the passions of the time in the murder of henry of germany son of richard of cornwall attacked by guy and simon de montfort while hearing mass at uterbo having turned back from the crusade they mangled his body in revenge for the mutilation their father had suffered after evensham edward was summoned home from the crusade but too late to see his father before he died on sixteenth november twelve seventy two after a reign of enormous length during a time which had seen much distress and disorder in political life but which had been after all a great period for the policy of this king with the heart of wax could not stem the tide of a civilization swelling to the full it is a relief to turn from the political story to consider other aspects of the time europe was in a state of intellectual and moral ferment of which the crusading movement was but one manifestation new figures and new institutions expressing new ideals or the perfection of old ones crowd the canvas of european history early in henry's reign the grey friars followers of saint francis the poor man of assisi's and black friars disciples of the noble spanish canon dominic landed in england to put their peculiar impress on her ecclesiastical and social life the monks had done great social and economic service but the time was right for a new manifestation the face of england was still mainly agricultural but the towns had been steadily growing and with them those contrasts of wealth and poverty which seemed the inevitable accompaniments of civic life the processes of borough development varied but the commonest type was the towns which had grown up through the association of specialized artisans and traders to supply the more luxurious needs of a great lord or corporation as the standard of living rose at first their tenure was merely futile but they gradually won for themselves the power of self-government the crusades gave an immense impetus to this movement when needy nobles bartered their feudal power for gold 
in some towns and more especially in london which had won from richard the right to choose its mayor a considerable alien population engaged in trade gave color and variety most of the towns too had their jewelry where behind their walls the jews lived a proscribed and peculiar people they enjoyed royal protection such as it was for an age which had not yet learnt to discount the church's condemnation of usury the jew was the only money-lender ever and anon the suppressed hatred with which the christian regarded the jew broke control and massacres and lootings of their quarters form a characteristic phase of medieval life in england generally a panic rumour was the cause when some lost child was supposed to have been kidnapped and crucified by the jews at their obscene festivals the dominicans under henry the third strove to convert them but it was a forlorn hope and under edward the first when their functions could be supplied by italian bankers they were driven from the realm to the number of over sixteen thousand no jew had henceforth the right to set foot in england till cromwell's day the jewries consisted often of substantial and well-built houses but it was in the crowded suburbs outside the walls of the town where narrow streets of rough cottages crowded upon one another that the begging friars found their work it was part of the franciscan asceticism to tend the ill and leprous but they and the black friars did their best work in preaching to the people in in racy idiomatic phrases which must have contrasted vividly from the old stereotyped and infrequent sermons of the parish priests the friars seem to introduce a lively element into english life which helps to break up the oriental passivity which had marked the lower classes of englishmen in strong contrast to the vivid adventure and change which had been long the lot of their superiors the friar sermons were probably responsible for the introduction of words of foreign origin into spoken english and they accelerated the movement by which the english tongue had all through the angevin period been becoming in a minor way once more a literary language it was an oxford friar who voiced in english verse the gratitude of the people to earl simon the friars too found favour among the great ones of the land the cultivated franciscan adam marsh was the friend and spiritual adviser of earl simon but gravely held aloof from political strife the scholarly dominicans and the franciscans too in spite of their founder's distrust of books did much toward the development of those other most characteristic institutions of the thirteenth century the universities already in the twelfth century there had been a tendency to erect in european centres where masters taught and students thronged corporations of teachers with rigid rules and privileges the oxford schools had been active and distinguished since the days of henry the second in twelve fourteen the university came into being formed on the model of paris for if thirteenth-century ideals were cosmopolitan they found their highest expression in france hitherto paris had claimed those english youths who were most greedy for knowledge now oxford and in a minor way cambridge held their own though the great battles of the scholasticism which the century made perfect were fought in paris and the oxford scholars often proceeded later to the more distinguished university the friars built large plain churches convenient for preaching 
but the time saw an immense development in gothic architecture which was perhaps now at its best combining a new lightness with the early plainness henry himself was a great builder he rebuilt the east end of westminster abbey round the new tomb of the confessor which he brought skilled workmen from italy to make the king in spite of his foreign leanings had a great devotion to the english saints and he called his sons by english names one of his great interests was the decoration of his houses and chapels and many of his schemes remained to testify to his fine taste in colour and design the age was full of colour dress especially now took on a greater richness in material and ornament though the old flowing simple styles were not altered it is in this and in the decorative arts which supplement architecture that the infallible judgment of the age in matters of artistic taste is best shown it is curious to reflect that this passionate love of beautiful things was combined with the utmost squalor in domestic arrangements this is however but one of the violent contrasts of which the time is full and which make it fascinating edward i who came to the english throne at the full tide of the medieval period was a very typical medieval and perhaps the greatest of our early kings in appearance he was an ideal king handsome and well made towering above ordinary men by a head and shoulders he had inherited the curious droop of one eyelid which had slightly marred his father's face he spoke with a stammer but engagingly he was the first king since the conquest with an english name and he was also the first who seceded without any form of election his reign was dated officially from the day after his father's death edward did not land in england until two years later meanwhile making a stay in gascony which as usual required to be put in order and at paris where he did homage to the french king for his duchy things were quiet in england but much work awaited edward on his return in the first part of his reign he issued a great series of laws which crystallized the reforming tendencies of the age he had learnt much from earl simon on many subjects and he eventually brought into permanent existence a wider parliamentary representation recalling in his model parliament of twelve ninety five the precedent of simon's parliament thirty years earlier not too much credit must be given to edward for this he had a true love for his people but he was a man of his time and there was no really democratic ideal in the middle ages edward loved power and clung to it but he also loved efficiency he needed much money for his enterprises and he realized that efficient taxation must be accompanied by adequate representation which he plausibly translated for the popular benefit into the maxim of roman law that what touches all should be approved by all nevertheless his definition of the constitution of parliament is a great feature of the reign subsequent parliaments contain the shire and borough representatives and also representatives of the lower clergy at first the estates voted separately it was some forty years before two houses were formed the representatives of the lower clergy had soon fallen away preferring to make their money grants in convocation the knights and burgesses drew together to form the house of commons acting separately from the upper house it was a feature of english as distinguished from continental society that there was no rigid division between gentry and traders 
the younger sons of gentlemen frequently drifted into the ranks of trade and eventually the reverse process became possible the burgesses who were now admitted to parliament were of course englishmen and though they may not have appreciated their privileges as much as posterity has done for them the fact proves the growing importance of englishmen in national life the first twenty years of the reign saw a great series of statutes the first parliament passed in twelve seventy five the first statute of westminster dealing especially with details which might ensure sound administration it also provided a regular revenue for the king by granting him the custom on wool wool fells and leather known later as the great and ancient custom the statute of gloucester in twelve seventy eight instituted inquiries under the writ quo warranto into the innumerable petty immunities and private jurisdictions which the barons had won largely at the expense of the hundred courts mostly merely by the growth of custom so bitter was the baronial feeling on this subject that edward had to allow prescriptive rights to stand but he took care to have a written record made and no new immunities of the sort were possible this was but one aspect of edward's policy of eliminating feudalism from political life in twelve ninety the statute quia emptores checked the process of sub-infeudation and so acted in the same direction for the future persons receiving a grant of land must hold it from the original lord so that in time quite poor men became tenants in chief and one of the main ideas of feudalism was rendered an absurdity on the other hand edward instituted the system of entail which has preserved a feudal element in the tenure of land to our own day edward's attitude to the church was consistent with his general policy though a loyal son of the church he was anxious for national control the archbishops of his time the franciscan peckham and winchelsea were englishmen but they and especially the former were full of the papalist ideas of hildebrand and innocent peckham indeed would sometimes have entrenched on royal authority but edward was watchful and the archbishop was no becket the statute of mortmain checked the passing of land into the dead hand of the church for the continuity of corporations deprived the lord of such feudal perquisites as wardships edward also defined strictly the jurisdiction of the church courts edward's national policy had one other notable aspect he was bent on the conquest of wales and scotland anticipating a natural political union which was not to be achieved for another three centuries wales included the marches ruled by norman lords and what later became the principality in the north ruled by native princes the welsh prince llewellyn ab Grudith, had supported earl simon and had won cardigan and carmarthen his power was so great that in twelve sixty seven henry had recognized him officially as prince of wales success seems to have distorted his political vision and he thought it possible to refuse homage to edward who therefore in twelve seventy seven invaded wales and locked up llewellyn's army in snowdon the welsh prince was defeated his southern conquests forfeited and he himself reduced to a very close dependence on the english king who for five years strove to impose the english system of government on the principality the celtic customs died hard 
and in 1282 a general rising stirred the land. David, Llewellyn's brother, who had submitted to Edward and received lands in the marches, took part in it. Llewellyn was killed at Orwin Bridge in December 1282, and three months later David was hunted down in the fastnesses of Snowdon and died the disgraceful death of a traitor. The English system was rigidly imposed and some forlorn revolts easily suppressed. In 1301, Edward's only surviving son, and his namesake, was invested with the principality, but the Welsh ever felt themselves a race apart, as the rebellion under Owen Glendower a century later showed. Edward's attempts to conquer Scotland fill the last years of his reign. He had a unique opportunity when, in 1286, the maid of Norway died on her way to Scotland to be made queen. The Scotch consented to leave the decision between the rights of the thirteen claimants to Edward as suzerain of Scotland. He decided in favor of John Balloy, who was accordingly crowned king, but he and the Scotch resented very soon the interpretation which Edward put on his suzerainty. The feudal bond to England, which had from time to time been acknowledged by Scottish kings, had been very loose, in fact, merely nominal. Edward, by encouraging appeals from the Scotch courts to Westminster, and by his general attitude, threatened to make it a real subjection. Balloy, in 1295, made a league with the new king of France, Philippe IV, who, unlike his predecessor, was unfriendly to Edward, and had the year before tricked him out of his duchy of Guienne. With the grants made by the model parliament, Edward equipped himself for the invasion of Scotland. He carried all before him. The lords did him homage, and he deposed Beloy. He left a lieutenant to administer Scotch law, but on the startling news of the successful revolt of the Scotch under William Wallace, a Renfrewshire knight, Edward invaded Scotland a second time, and won the Battle of Falkirk by the tactics dating from Hastings of combining a cavalry attack with showers of arrows. But Edward could not follow up his victory through distractions elsewhere. In 1299, his first wife Eleanor, and mother of thirteen of his children, having died nine years before, he married for political convenience the French king's sister, and so got Gascony back again. The two kings joined in resistance to the abnormal claims of Pope Boniface the Eighth, which Philippe was to follow up with violence, removing the seat of the papacy to Avignon in 1305, thus beginning the Babylonian captivity of the popes. In 1303, Edward turned again to Scotland, and in 1305, Wallace was captured and executed, and Scotland seemed to be conquered once more. But the next year her cause found its most heroic defender in Robert Bruce, grandson of the chief rival of John Beloy. Weary but indomitable at the age of seventy, Edward was on the march once more to Scotland when he died at Berg-on-Sands, 7th July, 1307. Edward's eager prosecution of his schemes in France and Scotland had led him into conflicts with his subjects, which give us the measure of his constitutionalism. Preparing for a great expedition to France in 1297, he levied a heavy customs duty on wool, and even laid hands on wool ready for shipping. 
this maltolt was bitterly resented and when edward and flanders sent home for more money next year parliament made a grant but coupled with it a petition that the king would confirm the charters and that henceforth no maltolts or taxes not legally granted should be raised the king swore an oath to observe this and the incident marks an advance in the power of parliament the chief nobles had refused to follow the king overseas in their feudal capacity and edward definitely waived his claim to demand such service much of the nobles went with him as stipendaries but the earls of norfolk and hereford refused even this and it was they joined with archbishop winchelsea who led the movement against edward's irregular taxation obviously there was a fractious element archbishop winchelsea was incensed against edward for his outlawry of the clergy in twelve ninety six when they in accordance with the famous bull of boniface clericis lacos refused to make the king any grant in his time of need edward was naturally incensed at the claim to exempt the ecclesiastical lands from taxation finally a compromise was made by which the clergy made a voluntary gift to the king and were inlawed on edward's return to england the opposition pressed for the formal confirmation of the charters edward evaded the question with great dexterity but consented in thirteen hundred to certain articuli super cartas which formed in effect a confirmation the spectacle of the founder of our modern parliament having these to us elementary principles of constitutional government thrust upon him is instructive edward resented it bitterly and as like many paragons of medieval chivalry he interpreted a promise by the letter rather than the spirit in spite of his motto keep truth he obtained papal absolution from his oaths but kept them our sympathies go out to him in his eager pursuit of his great aims and the virtue of his kingship is attested by the contrast of the years which follow End of chapter 4